Welcome to Pencils Down, a Finalis podcast. This is a show for listeners wanting to learn more about the ins and outs of the private securities brokerage landscape. Each episode will feature insightful conversations with the world's leading investment bankers, placement agents, capital providers, startup CEOs, and more. And with that, let's get into the show. All right. I am thrilled to welcome to the Pencils Down podcast, Michael Grotel with Ithron Advisors. Michael, it is a pleasure to have you on here with us. My pleasure to be here, Fed. Thank you. I usually start by asking our guests to share a little bit about their backgrounds and their eventual paths into investment banking. But I think this time I want to try something a little bit different, if it's okay with you, Michael, which is the fact that I couldn't help myself just reviewing your LinkedIn profile earlier today. uh, You express a deep and ongoing interest in history of of many different kinds. I think it's perhaps apply the term Renaissance man to you. And I wanted to get into this conversation really by receiving your perspective on some of the things that we've observed over the course of the last several weeks. It really feels like it's been a monumental period Uh, in the financial services space as it relates to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate, Signature Bank, and last week's near-death experiences of Credit Suisse. And, you know, I I really just wanted to see if you had any perspective just based on your varied background as it relates to what we've observed over the course of the last several weeks. Yeah, yeah, of course. And and actually, uh, you know, I can't believe I, I still have all of that up on my LinkedIn. I might have to go uh, take a look at that. But, um, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. You should keep it on. You know, I, I, I consider myself an advisor, right? Kind of kind of broadly speaking, uh, from corporate strategy and communications, primarily with the M&A focus. You know, I come from an operating corporate development and investor relations background. Uh, you know, with Finalis now, I fully branched into licensed investment banking, private placements. Super, super exciting, super cool. Uh, I actually, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't. Sometimes I say this, sometimes I don't. But uh, I was supposed to start my career on Wall Street uh, at Bear Stearns in 2008. I had the job, uh, so it was kind of a uh, a different life, uh, and I, I wound up back here. Although, I, you know, obviously I've been playing in finance uh, uh, from mostly from the corporate side for for a long time. So. Um, you know, I think that the advisor kind of is a generalist. And for me, um, you know, always bringing in, you know, I mean, I was in the advertising industry where, you know, at least, you know, maybe now it's only in the code, but it used to be that linguistics and, and semantics and aesthetics all played a role in the bottom line. And there was a culture of that there. Uh, you know, my academic backgrounds in economics, uh, economic history and art history. Uh, and I've always been kind of finding ground uh, in between things. I actually wrote uh, sort of a mini dissertation on uh, postmodern painting and the decline of the gold standard. So I've, I've got all sorts of uh, interconnected perspectives on things. But now, well, uh, I want to dig should in add, on, that, on that dissertation <laughs> topic a little yeah. later. <laughs> uh, hopefully I can remember it. But, uh, you know, a deal process, right? You're dealing with complex personalities. You're dealing with balancing, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, different you know, things as they come up, improvisation. So it's it's not just 60s jazz. This stuff really uh, kind of applies ac- across the board. So uh, I was kind of getting to this Renaissance man idea, right? I mean, you know, I, I, maybe I'm rambling here, but I, I, I uh, have some thoughts on that because, you know, the advisor's always been a generalist. 
And the Renaissance itself was the result of, of bankers, not of painters. The, you know, I grew up around Wall Street a little bit. I, I had some exposure to Lazar. I read Cohan's book a, a while ago. And, you know, you realize that this kind of uh, eclecticism, Renaissance men, uh, broad interest, you know, that is the role of the advisor. And, and it goes into, uh, has been a part of this industry, maybe not so much in the last 15, 20 years. And I have ideas on that, but, uh, you know, it's been pretty important for a long time. And I, if you'll let me keep going, I have a lot, a lot more to say on the topic. So you, you tell me, I mean. And, and so we'll, we'll connect the thread as it relates to, you know, Michael, the Renaissance man into your investment banking career in just a moment. But I, I did want to touch upon, you know, some of the things that we've observed over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, what, what's your perspective on what we've just experienced in the financial services space? And what does that foretell in terms of what we can expect in the weeks and months to come? Exactly. So, so I have a, a great little spiel because I knew I would get some version of this question. So, so my kind of thoughts on this are that, you know, outside of the Sun Tzu world, you know, strategy, power, and the balance sheet, you know, have, have always been connected, right? The original libraries and banks, right, held religious knowledge. That religious knowledge was deemed to be the source of the power of monarchs, right? And then wielding that power became the art of strategy, the art of war, whatever you want to call it, so on, so on. So, I think the balance sheet uh, is kind of, and metaphysics combined, that kind of is what strategy always has been. And my point in talking about granaries and uh, religious libraries is that, you know, stores of wealth necessitated lending, right? So there's interest rate data going back to Babylon. There's biblical interest rate data. I recall when I was a, a student, there was a 2,000-year-old uh, data set across, you know, all different global interest rates that was put together by someone uh, a, another economic historian in, in Britain, uh, you know, and the general idea there is that, you know, 20 years of effective flat or negative interest rates, especially in peacetime, is historically unprecedented. So I think there's a lot to that uh, in general. And, and I found because I, I, I knew that I would be the guy, that, you know, you might want to find an example. I found an example from 2000 years ago, and it was at the beginning of the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the Emperor Augustus drove rates down significantly. That encouraged a lot of investment abroad. That was great. Uh, a low rate of interest uh, and change always is a significant thing. And long run, without a lot of change, and then sudden change is always going to create pain. Uh, the second is that sometimes, uh, you know, uh, governments or uh, related entities can make decisions that maybe aren't uh, fully uh, uh, in the best interest of the functioning of the market and that can create pain that needs to be covered pretty quickly uh with the feeling of safety and uh, the restoration of confidence so i think there's something there i i think there was you know in, in terms of speaking about real events i think there was poor signaling uh early on uh you know from the policymakers. i i, I think that in some way led to the yield curve that we had that then led to uh, uh worse decisions because if you look at you know, I, I kind of got, uh, you could hear a pin drop, you know, in the virtual room last September when I was saying that, you know, 7 8% rate in 2023 is possible. Uh, just you, all you have to do is look at the 70s and say, okay, what was the trailing inflation rate and what did the Fed do about it? I mean, you know, I have one kind of more thing to, to tie that to, which is um, kind of that's, uh, yeah, well, let, let me pull it to this, right? Which is that, 
you know, it high, you know, uh, the 20th century economist and, and philosopher had talked about, uh, you know, the, the business cycle and the end of the business cycle, not necessarily 20 year periods of, of easy money, but, uh, you know, you'd have people on an island, right? And they would have, you know, still limited resources, but they would decide that they'd pull all their resources and build the machine to get them off the island, but they'd never finish building the machine because the, you know, there was tightening or, or whatever, they ran out of coconuts, whatever. And uh, so, so what, yeah, right. So what winds up happening, you know, is that one, your quality of life wasn't good enough the whole time because you could have just been using those resources to be happier at the time. And two, you're never getting off the island. Right. And that's the same question of what's going on, which is, you know, is there deposit insurance? You know, is this equity value going to be wiped out suddenly because there's a lack of profitability or there's a lack of deposits or whatever to back it up as these things are happening quickly. So, I'll tie that back into the advisor thing really quickly, only to say that there, there's a war on on generalism, and that's precisely the result of low interest rates pushing every decision to the margin. Hyper specialization is a result of everything being pushed to the margin. And never in my life have I seen more title proliferation and so-called specialization than at an unprofitable VC-backed SaaS firm. Now, Taylorism, as I understand it, is measured in terms of labor productivity is measured in terms of profitability. And the software era has given us half the labor productivity of the uh, hardware era and, and the next era, who knows what. So uh, there, there's a lot changing. You know, one of the interesting observations from what we saw coming out of the uh, Silicon Valley Bank episode in particular was that, you know, of course, everybody understands that, you know, a bank like SVB is ultimately accountable to the street as it relates to financial returns. And Oftentimes, it is the role of the regulator or of regulation to effectively put into place controls or risk controls that effectively compel an investment bank to ensure that it is applying the appropriate stress tests. It is interesting that, you know, in a context where regulations are not necessarily going to be the de defining factor or preventing a problem that in the absence of executive leadership and a culture risk management, you're going to have uh, these situations recur. And so my question for you kind of relates back to this culture of risk management, uh, because it's clear that in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, that was lapse, that, that, that there was uh, effectively not uh, the, you know, the appropriate controls that would have prevented the situation from occurring. And so my question for you is around, you know, what have you observed as kind of, you know, kind of organizational contexts which lead to uh, situations where, um, you know, a, an organization like Silicon Valley Bank is going to prioritize profit over immediate term profit over long term sustainability through appropriate risk management? Sure. And, and I think, you know, I'll break that apart a little bit only to say that I don't necessarily uh, believe that Silicon Valley uh, Bank, you know, did that exactly in that way. I think that, you know, they had a hard time adjusting to a new reality of the world. They were too slow. They failed to do that meaningfully and they kind of got caught holding the bag, so to speak. I mean, you know, I, I, I happen to think that uh, it's more of a concentration issue in the banking system in general. 
that's only worsened since 2008 that's created these sort of situations where you have, you know, essentially a handful of banks who have access to primary dealing uh, and the rest who have to deal with them. Now, that creates, uh, you know, essentially a velocity of money issue within um, the upper limits of the financial system. Uh, so I, I happen to think that while, of course, um, and I'll speak to it in one second, you know, there were risk and management issues here, 100%, you know, and, and within their entire ecosystem, frankly, uh, that I've been critical about for a while. But at the same time, I also think that there's um, also a lack of maybe the right Pareto optimality, you know, in the banking system uh, in terms of the flow of capital that got tightened recently that really, frankly, is no different than the Roman uh, example that I gave. So, you know, in terms of, of management, you know, obviously, I, I, I think that the right incentives for the right pe people are very important. I think that, um, you know, specialization, as I've said it, sometimes does lead to a separation, you know, it, in governance that is ineffective can become too much and lead to uh, someone saying, well, that's that's just not my job, even though the, the, the sign is flashing red at their desk. They're saying, well, you know, I'll wait for Gary down the, down the hall to see that. And uh, because I'm still getting paid. So I, I think that a lack of collective incentivization for the well-being of the firm or maybe for a broader set of, you know, things that are at stake, um, you know, is always important. Uh, I think that comp can be related to a lot of things. You know, I, I, I was used early in my career, I've set some sales comp and, uh, you know, within the limits of legality, you know, I, there were some playful and interesting things you can do with that to align people. I also took an entire account management team that had a, you know, $75 million research uh, portfolio that they were renewing every year. And, uh, you know, I took them off commission uh, and our uh, uh, revenue retention went from like 102 to 106 uh, just because people, you know, actually had a, more of a feeling of well-being and safety. So does that apply to Wall Street every every day? Not necessarily. But I think that we are more intelligent when we are using our general intelligence and our social intelligence, not just our narrow intelligence, which, by the way, uh, AI is going to come in and do for us. Narrow intelligence is if that's your job. See ya. General intelligence is here to stay. I think. Yeah, that's so fascinating, and it, it's 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 really great to see kind of how your mind works and how you're able to integrate kind of the things that you observe on the basis of larger societal trends as well as kind of events of the past. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with this notion of uh, kind of the cyclicality in, in historical events. It, it is fascinating to me how often we get caught up in these same patterns of behavior because fundamentally, you know, the Homo sapien hasn't evolved significantly over the course of the last several thousand years. And so in reality, you know, technology might be advancing, but our biological makeup is is really roughly the same as it's been. And so we end up falling into very similar patterns as human beings uh, as it relates to how we how we interact with the events around us. But in any event, I did want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how all of this now has impacted the way that you, th you have thought about the development of your own career, because you did found uh, Ithron a little over three years ago, and 
you've had a really diverse early career in the financial world. I'd, I'd love for you to share for our listeners what characterized that path and the story arc of your uh, of your own career uh, leading you into the investment banking world as now a licensed investment banker uh, who has part chosen to partner with Finalis uh, for that aspect of your career. You know, look, I, you know, I grew up around Wall Street to some degree. You know, I was, um, you know, I, I probably read my first analyst reports uh, before I was 15 years old. You know, I, I went to a lot of conferences. I even, um, people were aware that I was a good judge of character. I had these kind of early internships where at first it was just photocopying stuff and this and that. And then I was going to go to the conference and take notes. And then it was, you know, I'd say something about the CEO and they'd think like, how did this kid, you know, have this perspective? So I, I started realizing that, you know, you could kind of audit people based on the way they spoke and communicated uh, and, and understand things. So so very early on, I kind of got involved in that world. And, you know, I had some connections, too. So that was that was good. And like I said, the, the bear thing was very funny. I uh, that kind of sent me in another d- direction. Um, so, you know, I started Ifron three years ago, but I've been consulting on this line of business for at least a decade. Although most of that time I was primarily at, at eMarketer, which is, you know, as I said, kind of the primary uh, research source for digital transformation and so on. Uh, its uh, owner, original owner, uh, Beehive Partners, which was a New York, uh, B2, mostly B2B media VC, uh, where, I, you know, I got pretty involved. And um, uh, then we sold eMarketer to Axel Springer for a quarter billion in 2016. Uh, I was pr- very involved in that, frankly. And in fact, um, I had the only business plan that was more than a year old at that company uh, because everybody else was uh, in the advertising. So, so uh, I, I was very involved in kind of um, uh, repricing, changing the commercial plan. Uh, we basically went from a 13 to a 48% profit margin in about three years while still growing double digits on the top. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of people were involved in that, but, you know, like I said, I was the only guy in Excel. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I had a lot to do with the pricing and the communication and the rollout, both internally and externally, uh, that led to me, or even before then, really, because now we're talking 2012, 13, I got very involved in the rollout of, of B2B SaaS, uh, the West coast scene coming to New York, which is why I have a lot of maybe soured things to say about that, that, that world. But, um, uh, you know, I was a speaker on change management at Dreamforce in like maybe 2014 or 2015, uh, I worked with uh, Gainsights, now a public company, on, on some of the earliest customer success initiatives in New York. I uh, uh, had some relationships at some generalist PE firms uh, that where I did some work. I even I, I once redesigned the logo for a, a, a company that uh, guarded uh, military black ops sites. That was uh, not intentional at all. It just came up. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so so anyway, so. 2020, we integrated, uh, we finished the integration of eMarketer with Insider. I was kind of the last of the old guard to go, uh, at least from the operating uh, management side of, of the table. And, uh, you know, I was looking to do a, another fund, actually, with, you know, the old investors. And uh, timing was um, really ridiculous in the first quarter of 2020, and, and that didn't work out. So I, I wound up pretty much on my own. You know, I have a, a nice network of folks and we're still involved and in, in doing stuff, but uh, it didn't turn out in, in the thing I, you know, had in my head <laughs> for a few months uh, uh, leading up to that. Um, but Ithron was always going to be this kind of, you know, consulting hybrid model thing and, and finding Finalis well enough into that was great. But 
since 2019, I've been working with a crypto unicorn called Chainalysis, and they were kind of the grown-ups in the room. They were working with law enforcement and stuff like that and, and really tracking uh, transactions. Uh, and that led to me being fairly sought after in the crypto world. I teamed up with uh, a big IR agency called ICR uh, to work with them on their crypto and digital asset mandates with their uh, clients. So uh, Playboy, which was the first kind of big NFT launch to hit public markets. I scripted all that stuff for CNBC, uh, earnings calls, things like that. You know, and, and I, you know, look, I was reporting into a German public company. I, I went to Capital Markets Day. I, I knew about that stuff. I've been to a lot of investment conferences, uh, but th this was very quick deep end. And um, it, it was a lot of fun. I worked across the consumer groups and also on a ton of new listings, some of which did not happen because the world started to fall apart very quickly in, in uh, the first half of uh, you know last year. Uh, that's when I, I got involved with Finalis because I hit my market again. Everyone said, well, now that you only talk to investors, Michael, you know, why don't you introduce us to some? And I kind of needed to make that a little more legal. Uh, and, uh, so, so that's what I did pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, now, now I'm here, so I'll, I'll stop there. Well, I mean, it's, it's just fascinating to see how you were able to kind of dovetail your experience at a place like Beehive now into Ithron. And what I wanted to dig into in a little bit more detail was specifically the types of transactions that you've been working on since you joined the Finalis platform. Now, on the Finalis side, you know, I still have some of my own media deals that I've, I've now kind of brought into the platform. I've been involved in some med tech things that are pretty exciting. Um, you know, one also because that's uh, pretty interesting at, the, at this point in the cycle. Also, I'm trying to get more involved in AI. Uh, I'm great on consumer and luxury. So I've been looking for things with within, uh, you know, a bit of a more of an element there. Um, but, you know, they, we were talking about private placement stuff. And for me, I recently picked up the 79. So I'm, I'm really honestly most excited about getting back into what I really know very, very well, which is strategic M&A uh, and, um, you know, work around that primarily in media, recurring revenue, IP based businesses. And I'd actually I, I happened to be on the phone uh, two years ago with a certain large PE firm. The very day the news broke, they just acquired Taylor Swift's uh, portfolio. And I, I'm not a big Swifty. My girlfriend uh, might be, but I, you know, I, uh, I happened to, or at least was when she grew up. I don't know if she'd want me saying that long, but, uh, uh, you know, I was thinking I'm on the wrong side of the business. Cause I was talking about a deal that admittedly was a bit boring compared to the music IP stuff. So I'd love to get more involved in that. I'm looking to, um, but generally, yeah, you know, um, you know, the industry sweet spot for me is, is again, is media tech enabled, uh, IP based. Um, but, uh, you know, I can go pretty broad and uh, into consumer uh, categories and, uh, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating background and story into, you know, launching your own investment banking platform. And I have to ask you, because the experience of launching your own business, especially over the course of the last three years is not for the faint hearted. I'm just curious, you know, what, what has this fraught period uh, been like for you and impacted the experience of scaling uh, Ithron? Going back to 2020, uh, it was a little bit weird, you know, having to adjust, you know, look, I'm in the strategy game. Strategy is always how do you react to the newest information or how do you plan in advance to re have a plan that will withstand 
new information. So, you know, I, I, I like to think that I'm more flexible than most. Um, you know, the crypto thing, obviously it hit, uh, it hit the work I was doing. It hit my income for 2020 pretty significantly more from a professional, uh, exposure than, uh, uh you know, uh, uh investment pers- uh, exposure, frankly, but that, that was no fun. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy and lucky to say that personally, I haven't been very affected. I'm stressed that the world is not a peaceful place. I would love it to be. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I've done okay. And then, you know, the other thing I'll say, and this is both a challenge and an opportunity, you know, is FINRA communications, uh, uh, policies aside, which actually are, are reasonable, um, being, uh, you know, doing what I do, which is to see around corners, uh, it's not an easy thing to communicate to people because number one, you know, I sometimes I call myself a CEO whisperer. You, that's something you want whispered. You know, if you don't want somebody shouting on the corner that, uh, you know, something negative and I'm not always negative, but I do try and prepare people because I think one, that's the most opportunistic and, and two, that's usually the most lucrative and ethical, uh, is to be very well prepared. So I, there has been a challenge particularly in me trying to find SaaS firms that I can advise on profitability and restructuring um, by telling them that they're going to have to fire a lot of people before they had to fire a lot of people. Now, I don't find any pleasure in that, um, but you know, I, I found that I, I maybe aggravated a few too many people by uh, being a little too ahead of the curve. And in having to market my own services, there is a, there's a challenge there, particularly in a down period. Um, so again, I'm actually, I'm turning more optimistic again. Uh, but there are always things that I would want to say to people at a high level and in a quiet tone. Um, and, and that will, that will always remain a a, a bit of a challenge. I want to just, uh, Michael, if I may, I wanted to kind of, um, ask you a little bit more about this notion of being a CEO whisper, a whisperer. And one of the things that you mentioned in your website, which really resonated a lot with me was this notion that you know in addition to the investment banking advisory services that you provide you also see Ithron as an investment and thought leadership platform uh, development for artists athletes and other public figures i wanted to ask you specifically about that aspect of what i might refer to as your broader portfolio of activities through Ithron and first of all you know what is that all about you know what is the nature of those of that type of um, uh, kind of thought leadership that that you provide, uh, and to what groups have you been able to share more specifically, or what types of groups are you extending that advice and thought leadership? Generally speaking, right, it's it's uh, common knowledge applies, right, which is that um, you know if you're able to help other people out, or you're able to kind of stay on the message, know what to say, when to say it then, you know, you're not going to be looking, oh, should we respond to this story or not? You're going to know what's natural uh, to speak about, and you're going to have a nice cadence around that. Now, that, that's the corporate world. And, and so, you know, on the individual side, you know, it's, um, it, it's different because I, I think there's such an emphasis on wanting to take, you know, essentially celebrity money and, and put it towards, um, you know, things that are both wealth and, and it, it just lacks morality for me. So, what, what I'm trying to do is essentially give people a platform where they can both get involved in the primary market, which I happen to have access to. Um, you know, if they're looking, you know, if they have a really big structure, I can advise that big structure, right? 
um, you know, individuals. I'm not looking at people's mutual funds. It's more about, you know, what do you want to say to the world? How do you want to execute on it? And what do you want to say about it? So I, I, I think it's very much a question of, you know, where are these people's values? Is this idea that, you know, stewardship is lacking and the people who are giving these people advice, uh, these are largely creative people come from the heart. And I feel like they're getting advice that is, is not holistic. Um, and I don't necessarily even mean that in a loosey-goosey way. I mean that it, it doesn't combine their financial objectives with their moral objectives, with their emotional and reputational and influential objectives. And uh, my, my goal is, is to really get at that. Now, how, how am I going about that? You know, uh, I've always been a guru, you know, mostly uh, for better or worse in indie rock, but, uh, you know, and, and film. Uh, I have and, and a few painters and authors, but I have a lot of friends who I've always kind of been a background uh, uh, influence to. And I have a lot of connections, uh, you know, in this world of IP. So I've been dealing with, uh, you know, and I was in the media and sports group at, at ICR previously, although I was still an external uh, resource. So I have a lot of connections to talent agencies. I have a lot of connections directly into film and music. And, um, you know, I'm really looking, I, you know, to, to work with these folks a little bit more. Again, this is, you know, newer as I, you know, have more access to these markets and I'm coming more from a corporate uh, thought leadership and communications background. But um, the goal very much is to help people build a platform that will actually uh, make an impact on the world in, in a serious way and, and align with, uh, you know, their feelings, basically. And just on that point on collaboration, uh, you know, since you've joined the platform, you've no doubt uh, heard of the Finalis Marketplace, which is an environment that that Finalis has built to really bring about more syndication of deal flow among the investment bankers that are affiliated onto the Finalis platform. What opportunities do you see in that kind of syndication as a way to really grow the pie and not necessarily see the deal world as zero sum, but really an opportunity to grow revenue opportunities among independent investment bankers such as you and, and Ithron advisors. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, look, when I first got on there, it was great to see the marketplace, right? It's, it's a really good thing. What, you know, I got to see what deals are out there, how they're trading, uh, which helped me go, okay, you know, look, I, as I said, I've been on the other side of the table. I have a pretty good idea of how to price things and how to go to market. Um, but, you know, it was just helpful to see that in context and understand the market that I'm now in. Uh, so number one, that was great. Number two, uh, just connecting with with people right away. Everybody's very open um, to collaborating and, and, and getting involved. And I've done some of that, although I've, you know, tried not to, uh, you know, have eyes bigger than my stomach and, and to kind of, you know, um, do what I'm capable of and prove that and, 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 uh, build from there. Um, what I, you know, again, that's all towards the placement side. You know, what I'm more excited about is the, uh, collaborating on, um, you know, investment bank. I, not that I'm not excited about working on the placements, but, you know, really involved collaborations on, uh, restructurings on M and A mandates on things like that, because, you know, we're an investment bank here at Fidel. Can I say that? Right. It's at some level we can make our own pods and, uh, you know, figure out how to approach these deals. And obviously there's a lot of, of talent and skill in the virtual building. So I, I'm really excited about that. And, you know, my offering kind of scales, right. You know, it's the whole private company life cycle, but I also do some really high level stuff for public companies. If, if, if that, uh, is involved and, uh, 
I'm also kind of a middleware, which is that I don't need to have a mandate for anything. You can actually reduce me to the space in between. Everybody else can do that. And I'll make sure everything is working and everything is flowing. And, and uh, you know, I prefer to have a little bit more sleeves rolled up than that. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm a systems guy. I like to get inside of it. So I, I, I think that, uh, you know, getting involved in the M&A mandates and restructuring mandates uh, on the platform will be pretty exciting there. Yeah. Obviously, you know, with the arrival of ChatGPT and OpenAI, there's been a lot of conversations around how artificial intelligence is going to bring about a new wave of innovation uh, across all sectors of the economy. But here I'm specifically focused on kind of the knowledge economy uh, and investment banking. Be curious to get your perspective on you know, what an innovation like AI might bring about with respect to the delivery of investment banking services and advisory. I've used uh, GPT a good deal um, in terms of just organizing you know, my notes and things like that. I found it very helpful. Uh, I don't really think it thinks, but I haven't seen the, the Pro 4 version yet. That I hear is incredibly impressive. You know, outside of these very broad things, right? What will it do for investment banking? I, I Frankly, I hope my eclectic intelligence, my human intelligence is going to be better at telling that AI what to do than uh, people who are in a very narrow lane and might be replaced by an AI one day. So, I, you know, I, I am excited about it in the sense that I think it will bring back, if it takes over a lot of the quantitative work, it will bring back the qualitative work that's been missing for so long. But at the same time, I think it is the result of 20 years of hyper-specialization, hyper-narrowing that this can even be achieved and we can call it this because I'm not sure that it's capable of that this level that we think it is. But I do think that we've reduced knowledge work so, so much that it's easy for it to take over from what knowledge work is today. I try to be excited about everything, but I try to think uh, uh, really, again, holistically and seriously about everything. And I'll... Well, I think, Michael, that is a perfect note upon which to conclude our conversation. Just this notion that, you know, perhaps these new tools are going to give us professionals the bandwidth to create more space for, you know, some of these broader approaches or frameworks, whether that's philosophy, history, morality, and the like, you know, that we started this conversation discussing. So it, it was a really illuminating conversation. And I can't tell you how thrilled we are to count on on you and Ithron advisors as partners alongside us here uh, at Finalis. So very excited to have you on board and looking forward to continuing the conversation in the days ahead. Thank you for everything, Fed. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Finalis is a broker-dealer platform with everything that M&A advisors, investment bankers, and placement agents need to succeed. We deliver a broker-in-a-box regulatory affiliation solution replete with tech-enabled compliance, research and analytics, deal lifecycle management tools, and a first-of-its-kind deal marketplace. Learn more at www.finalis.com. You've been listening to Pencils Down, a Finalis podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep covering the latest in the private securities brokerage landscape. Thanks for listening. Until next time. 